I remember just sitting there wondering, okay, what, what could it be? I hope it's not so serious. And three doctors walked in at once. and welcome to the Problems We Face podcast. My name is Beatty, and today I'm joined by... Why don't you just tell us like a little bit about yourself? So like I said, my name is Joab Wako and I am a kidney transplant recipient. It's going to five years this year in November. So I got my kidney transplant in November 2016. Got sick in 2015. I was actually in the state. I don't know if I should start my, my story now or you, you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, I guess before we go into that, we can talk. Joab and I met in Dubai at um, kind of like a, a world, a conference about um, advocacy for non-communicable diseases. And then we were in like a little, what is it? Like a, a little um, like chat group in one of the things. I Breakout guess. group. Yeah. yeah. So we shared our story there and then we were able to talk a little bit more separately because I think I had not found people there that had actually had um, chronic illnesses. So it was nice to talk to someone who had who actually had one instead of just like advocating for it. Yeah, 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 it was it was really great meeting you. I think it was three years ago and uh, it was so inspiring to meet a teenager like throughout my advocacy i had met young adults and i guess that's just my circles you know mm-hmm. but meeting you and seeing you dealing with a chronic illness in teenagehood that was so inspiring and you know more props to you but as you said there are not very many young people in the advocacy space who have chronic conditions like us so it's quite refreshing and I think we need to inspire hopefully more people to do it and and get out there and talk about their stories and see how they can yeah change the world change the global health space so that we can have a better you know I guess response to our condition if I can say that yeah yeah I agree okay I guess now we can dive into your your story yeah so talk about your like beginning so my story begins about six years ago and I sat there and let's see I, I changed it back and forth but it's that six years ago and I found out that I have kidney failure so this is in 2015 around in, in March I was working I just graduated from university and interestingly enough I was in the states I was in Alabama so I was working and I just started feeling sick you know and so I decided to go to a dispensary, like a, she was a nurse practitioner, I believe. And when I went there, she listened to me and I looked, I was fit. I used to run, I used to go to the gym. And so she tells me that she thinks it's possibly ulcers because the symptoms I was having was I couldn't have, I couldn't eat. Like I lost my appetite completely. So I couldn't eat and I was kind of feeling weak. And so she gives me some ulcer medicine. Like it was just something to take care of my ulcers. Mm-hmm. So I ended up taking it. And literally the night of, I threw up everything and I couldn't keep anything down. So I decided to try and go to a hospital instead. And when I go to the hospital, it was so full BD. It was like, there was no space. I don't know what was going on because it was in Gadsden, Alabama, I remember. And so it was packed. 
Yeah. But then I went to the waiting room. I know. So I, I'm in the waiting room and I was lucky one of my friends took me there. Mm. And I couldn't believe how, how full it was because up until then, I hardly used to go to the hospital. You know, I, I was relatively healthy, so there was no need to go to the hospital. But when we went there, it, it was too full. So I decided, okay, you know what? Maybe it's something that will just kind of pass over by itself. Let me go back home and try and take some ginger ale with lemon. Mm-hmm. And it's going to pass over, right? The next day I get up and it's even worse. It's like, I'm so tired. I can't even move. And I tell my friend, I, I'm feeling worse about it. Like I'm not feeling good. So I Skype my mom and she tells me, maybe you should look for another a doctor who will do some blood tests because up until then I hadn't got any blood tests done. So my friend takes me to Birmingham, Alabama, and I was able to see a doctor who convinced, I had convinced, like, I convinced her that I was feeling worse than just my stomach. And so she asked me a couple of questions and she thought it was H. pylori. And that's the first time I ever, ever heard of that. And so the last thing she did was she took a blood test, Casey's blood test. And it's about Easter of 2015. Casey's blood test and I go home. So next day, it's Good Friday. And she calls me at 8 a.m., which I found really odd. Mm-hmm. I know. Yeah. Calls me and... I'm wondering, okay, why is she calling me at 8, on, at 8 a.m.? It's a holiday. No one's working on Good Friday. So I pick up and she tells me, by the way, hi, job. It's the doctor you saw yesterday. And I did some tests on your blood and it turns out that your your HP, which is your hemoglobin, is 3.8. And that's super low. So there's something definitely going on other than your your stomach and not being able to eat, no appetite. But because of your low blood pressure, I mean, your, your low HB, mm-hmm. it's like I had to, she advised me to rush to hospital. She was like, okay, you know what? You need to go to the ER immediately because I don't know what's going on. Your HB is low. There's something really wrong going, you know, with your, with your body right now. Call my friend again, rush to the ER. Mm-hmm. And we went to UAB. In, in Birmingham, and I walk up to the nurse who's at the tri- tri- triage. I think that's how you say it, the triage. And when I get there, I tell him that I just got a call from a doctor I had gone to see yesterday, and she told me that my HB is 3.8, and he, she had given me some other blood numbers that I can't remember, but I basically tell him everything. And then he just looks at me shocked, like he, I was just wide open. He, he looks at me and says, it's impossible for you to be at 3.8. And you're walking and talking and coherent and everything. So at the time, I didn't really know how low it was. You know, it just sounded like a number, but a normal young man like me should be at about maybe 12, 14. <laughs> but I'll get 28. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't believe me. So the first thing he says is, Come, come to the, the room. There's a room he took me to. And we're going to do a quick blood test just to confirm everything. So they do the test and they find out that, yes, my blood, my HB is 3.8. And they're now starting to wonder what's really going on. So they take more blood and do other tests. And by this time, I, I think they already kind of knew what was going on. But they didn't want to just kind of break the news to me all of a sudden. Like, you know, so he, he doesn't tell me much. And I'm taken to now a room in the ER and they're starting to put all these lines on me. So I was starting to feel like, okay, there's something really serious going on more than just, 
the potential H. pylori or whatever, the, the ulcers. And I remember just sitting there wondering, okay, what, what could it be? I hope it's not so serious. And three doctors walked in at once. <laughs> and so when they walked in at once, I'm obviously just like, okay, this, is, this has to be serious. So one of the doctors, the older one, kind of tells me, kind of asked me, uh, do you know what the kidneys do? And I say, yeah, you know, they remove toxins and balance all these electrolytes, just basic stuff. So tells me, okay, yeah, you, you know what kidneys do. And uh, it then kind of tries to tell me that um, things there's something wrong with my kidneys. And he's not sure if it's like acute, which is some, or if it's going to be something that I'd have to, you know, deal with a bit more, you know, long term. But he didn't go into detail. So when he told me that, uh, it, it's like your world stops. I, I don't know. You know, up until then, and at, at the time I was 23, just about to turn 24, uh, it's like everything stops. You know, you, you don't even, you don't know what to think. I was nervous. I was like, I, I, I didn't know anything about dialysis, any of that. But fast forward a bit. So I'm taken to the ICU and literally... Uh, I was the youngest that night, you know, so I'm being rolled into this huge ICU <laughs> and I've never been there. It's all these wires, all these lines, I have all these cannulas in my hands and they're just trying to stabilize me because at the time now my blood pressure is really high, it was uh, like 200 and something over 100 and something. Yeah, it was very high. Uh, basically running on adrenaline at that point <laughs> because, yeah, my body had just kind of was just hanging on at that point. Mm-hmm. So I get into the ICU and that's when it, it started to hit me that, okay, it, it's serious. And we start to put the line. So to do dialysis, you need to have a CVC. It's called a CVC. Um, it's like a big catheter in your neck. And so they put that line in and be on my at that point. Oh my. So, <laughs> yeah, they put, they numb the area, of course, but... You're just seeing everything, feeling, you feel the blood and you're just nervous. It, I was so nervous and the doctor's speaking all these tongues. You know, you just you just feel like you're in a surgery and you're awake. Yeah. When I had my um, hip surgery, the ICU was the thing that scared me. The, like the place before the surgery was scared me the most because there was like eight doctors around me. And I was like, oh, no, what is going on? <laughs> it's really scary. Uh, yeah. Like that. that's how it felt. Like exactly. And so we put the, the catheter in and I had to do dialysis the next morning because it was about 11 by the time they were doing it at night. So the next morning, of course, I can't sleep. I couldn't eat because yeah, there's just so much going on with my body. I was hungry, but they would tell me to just eat ice. <laughs> so uh, I was eating ice that night and... At 4 a.m., and then I think it was about 4 or something, because the dialysis unit opened super early. Mm-hmm. And that was the first. So I'm rolled into the dialysis center at the hospital. And BD, when I when I was rolled in, yeah. it machines everywhere. After ICU, I thought I, I could handle anything. But yeah. dialysis, the first time you go in, there's just so much blood, so many machines. I, uh, I was a bit nervous, of course. Mm-hmm. So the the nurse now uh he comes up to me and tells me yeah this is the first time i'm sure you'll be nervous but we we know what we're doing i can assure you i've done this he told me he'd done it for a couple of years of course so i'm hooked up to the machine and seeing my blood come out and go back for the first time a function that i, I guess 
I've taken for granted, you know, because my kidneys did it all the time. So now relying on a machine to do it, it, it dawns on you that, uh, yeah, you have to appreciate the small things. So, right. Well, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's the biggest, or at least for me, the biggest thing that I've like taken from mine is that like I take for granted so many, so many things, even now, because like my disease affects like some parts of my life, but other people struggle with like other aspects that I still take for granted, which I think is just so crazy, but I don't know. Um, okay. Sorry. Continue on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, this kind of that dawning on me uh, that I'm depending on a machine, it dialysis each session is four hours, but I didn't, I didn't really get to rest because I was so nervous. Uh, wondering how I'll do this, how long I'd have to do this, you know, hoping that it was temporary and that my, my kidneys would just shut down temporarily and they'd pick back up. Because at that time, they thought that it was temporary, which is kind of acute. Because I was young, I was healthy. I didn't have, uh, or I didn't look like I had uh, the things that would cause the kidneys to fail, like hypertension. Because you have to, like, obese people tend to be predisposed mm-hmm. but I didn't have that I didn't have diabetes so they weren't quite sure why my kidneys had reached that point of shutting down yeah so that was the first dialysis session I felt relaxed after because now my blood pressure came down I found out I had 10 liters of excess fluid <laughs> during that first dialysis session so that's why my blood pressure was through the roof yeah, so get out of dialysis and now the first week it was just back and forth with my insurance because I'm an international student at the time in the States. So that my insurance cover the, the procedures that have just been done on me, the dialysis, the stay in hospital because the bill came to about $60,000 and <laughs> for an international student made for for me from Kenya, it's super expensive to pay that out of pocket. Yeah. So yeah, that, that first week was just intense because I remember the insurance rep coming every day asking me if I knew any more information. I was calling my work area, like my where I worked, to find out if I was covered. So it was pending the whole week. It was quite intense and that's why insurance for me these days is something I, I really advocate for and push for. If you can get insurance and insurance should cover everybody, including us who are chronically ill. Yes. <laughs> you can, yeah, we can get into like healthcare advocacy too after you finish your tor- story because I know that that's something that I've talked about as well. But Okay, definitely. And so the first week, that, that was the main thing. Luckily for me, uh, my insurance did pay and so I didn't have to pay out of pocket. Uh, I did find out that my kidneys had shrunk and we suspected that. And when your kidneys are shrunk, it's not acute. That means it's chronic and they'll probably never come back. So he started talking to me about long-term, that long-term dialysis and potentially a transplant the second week. So that's when now I was explained to what happened and they were kind of delving into possibilities of how my kidneys failed. Up until now, I don't have any definitive answer. Uh, I was told that I might need to 
do a kidney biopsy to find out. And I just never explored that option because I was so unstable at the time. Then by the time I was trying to get my transplant, I had left the States. So I'd come back home. Mm-hmm. And when I went to India, they told me that wasn't really a priority because my kidneys have already failed. Mm-hmm. So they, they told me I can do it later and find out what it was, but they suspect it's an autoimmune condition. So some form of what's called glomerular nephritis, where your yeah, the, the nephrons swell and the body attacks them or something. So a lot of young people get that where it's like your your the immunity attack the kidney and yeah, it makes it fail. So if you don't catch it in time, you end up with kidney failure. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's my story up until I was released. And so after that, I started dialysis, of course. I, I did dialysis for about a year in the States mm-hmm. while I work, which was the hardest thing ever because my first dialysis session used to be at 4 a.m. to 8, 8 a.m. And then I'd go to work oh. and I'd work all day until 5. <laughs> and it was terrible. I can... <laughs> yeah, that does not sound sustainable. Terrible. Like, it was so bad. I would get to work at 8.39 and just feel like it's 5 p.m. already. <laughs> yeah. And my productivity at work went down. I, I could hardly keep up. I used to have these things where when I stand up suddenly, your blood pressure just drops. So you start feeling like, <laughs> like you're about to pass out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I managed somehow, though. I managed to work for that whole year. Just as my family was getting things ready because we tried to get a transplant in the States and it was too expensive. Mm-hmm. So uh, my family collectively decided that we would rather I come back home to Kenya because I'm from Kenya originally. And then we decided to go to India because India does more transplants than Kenya does. So we wanted to tap into that expertise and also the costs were reasonable. We could afford to pay up front because yeah no insurance was going to cover me here because immediately i came back home uh, i was deemed to have pre-existing conditions so it's, my insurance is capped all over and I, <laughs> i'm hardly covered even though i pay for my insurance wow. okay so i guess so then in that year so you it was like a year before you got your transplant right is that a year and a half okay yeah. so in that year i guess you kind of mentioned it with work but like how did your new like routines affect affect your life and like your mindset and everything man my new routine well dialysis is four hours and you have to do it three times a week Mm -hmm. so you're spending about 12 hours a week on a machine and then commuting to and back so i'd spend a lot of time just going to dialysis and coming back you know to where i live other than going to work so for me, I would say it, it really weighed heavy on me because kidney disease, and I think someone who's gone through kidney disease would agree that fatigue is your is the thing you're fighting the most. You're, you're always tired. You're, you're always constantly tired. So it really affected me because I would dialyze on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And when I got home on Friday, I would just want to relax until Monday. So I never went out. I never really had a social life. From when I was diagnosed, still I left the States. Like I lost a lot of my friends because of that, because I was just so tired that other than work and shopping to just survive, <laughs> I would be at home. Yeah. Okay. And then I don't know if this, like th- we can also do get into this after. Do you want to talk about your transplant? Yeah. I can talk about the transplant. So 
<laughs> Even the shorter, the longer, than the <laughs> Well, the combination of, yeah. Uh, okay, so after coming back home, I spent about three months here just doing paperwork. So there's a lot of paperwork involved in a transplant in another country, let alone here at home. So we had to do the paperwork to travel out to India with my donor, who's luckily my elder sister. She's three years older than me. And my mom was our caretaker. So once we got that done by, I think we flew out in October of 2016. Yeah, flew out in October, get to India. Culture shock. (laughs) Culture shock right off the bat because I've never been to India, let alone anywhere in Asia. And you're going there for medical reasons. You're going there for surgery, a major surgery at that. So we land there and the hospital I had been assigned to, because it's like when you're applying for the process, it's like you apply kind of like you're going to school, you know? And so when you apply to go to another country, it's like, okay, this is the hospital you have to go to, essentially. And it's the same with school. Like you want to go in the States, the school you accepted, you know, is where you kind of go and you have to go there. Mm-hmm. So we get there and it was terrible. Like the, the dialysis unit there had rust, like the bed was rusting. And so I get there. Yeah. And oh. <laughs> uh, I check in to dialysis straight from the airport. So it's like you land and you just have to go straight for dialysis. And I'm there looking at this dialysis unit and I'm not impressed. So I, I look at my mom and tell her, you know, I don't, I don't feel comfortable doing a transplant here because if this is how the dialysis unit is, what about the surgery area and all that? So I tell my mom the next day, we're going to go look at other hospitals in New Delhi because we were in New Delhi. And we go around, we search like three different hospitals. I know in a new country that like we just landed like the previous day. <laughs> but I, I just forced issues because our visa said we had to go to that hospital. But I, I just, I went and looked at other hospitals. And when we found one, it was actually in a city called Gur- Gurgaon, which is about 45 minutes from New Delhi. And I liked the hospital. It was really nice. They had an international center. They were really professional. So when we got there, they told us we could do the paperwork and help us change over before we do the transplant, right? But when we did the test, so we had to do all these tests where my donor, you know, checks out and make sure that she's healthy, first of all, because when you're doing a transplant, you have to be healthy. And yeah. then that uh, she's compatible with me. So we do those tests, luckily she's healthy and compatible, but oh, my, I'm O positive and she's O negative. So, but yeah, a negative can give to a positive, but vice versa, you can't. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, so that, that much out and everything. And we were able to get the transplant about two months later because it was Diwali. And so we, we happened to see Diwali, which is really cool. Uh, got a, experience and i loved india i think once i got it into the groove of india and just figured out what was going on i loved it and the transplant was done end of november at the november 30th so that's when we went in and it was the most i don't know i was anxious i was happy i was so many things like you said when we went to the pre-operating room Mm-hmm. My goodness! <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's a lot of a lot of emotions at once. Yeah, I, I think the last thing I thought when I was on the the table was I don't know if this is a good idea, 
maybe I should like and I wanted to I wanted to back up <laughs> as they were putting the <laughs> putting me to sleep the first thing I thought was man I, I don't know if it's such a good idea guys and I just blacked out and the next thing when I wake up the transplant was done so I, I wanted to back out just on the bed like on the, the operating table yeah I mean because it's like a very you're very vulnerable because I was like strapped down on the table and me everything too. was yeah. like blue above me with all their with all their scrubs and everything and I I was like oh no I'm I'm okay thank you <laughs> but then I woke up and I was really like my surgery I felt relief almost immediately so that was good um and did you did it feel like that for you or did you struggle during the recovery I felt relieved too uh, I think just because you're making making urine at that time so your body ends up kind of you feel better I don't know you feel you just feel better <laughs> so I, I I concur with that I don't know how to describe it more than you feel better you know it just feels like you're in a better space like your body feels like okay I can do this right yeah. so you got your surgery and then how did your disease play out like after that and now and like how does it play a role in your life currently okay so after the surgery you I was able to, hmm, I think the biggest change for me was the energy level. I'm trying to figure out like one point that I can say that really changed for me was the energy level because when you're on dialysis, you are anemic most times. Ah, so you can relate. You can relate to the fatigue that comes with it. Yeah, it it also affects your focus. It's everything. It's not just tiredness. There's a, there's a depth to it that I, I can't explain to people because people are like, you're just tired, just rest and you'll be better. And it's like, no, even when I'm not tired, mm-hmm. I can't think straight. Like, I, focusing yeah. is difficult. Yeah. So yeah. you get, so I used to get um, iron infusions. So I would go sit in like an infusion clinic and get like iron through an IV. And right after that was the only time I would feel like more awake. But- so did that happen with dialysis for you or was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did, did iron have this taste of like licorice to you? Like did it have a taste? Yeah. Or it does, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that used to happen to me if my blood count was good because it was so hard because after the iron, it would take a couple of days for my iron to pick up. Mm-hmm. But it, it would never go above 12 because... We were when you're on dialysis, it can clog up the, the dialyzer if you have too much blood. So oh. they want you to be a, a bit anemic, but not on the lower end. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So after you've done, you've continued dialysis for, every, yeah. No. So after the transplant, you don't need to do dialysis anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, it, I've been asked this question before, and it's it's a good one because there's some people who still need dialysis. Mm-hmm. Post transplant because it takes a while for the kidney to pick up. So for a couple of days, you might need to do dialysis. Or if the kidney is kind of going through a phase of rejection and not so much, like it's acute rejection, you might need to do dialysis in between. But for most people, if you have a live donor, once they put that kidney in, you're good. You 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 have a kidney working for you, and your blood count goes through the roof. My my blood count went to 18 after that. It now went too high because mm-hmm. yeah. Because <laughs> now I have the opposite problem where I have too much blood. But before, I was anemic most of the time. Wow. Okay. So how did, like, did your life go back? Did you get, like, a sense of normalcy after that? Or was it still, like, with your energy levels, like, different and everything? 
So I got a sense of normalcy. I think with better energy levels and I can eat more foods because in dialysis, it's really restrictive. You can eat very high potassium foods like potatoes and a lot of vegetables unless they're leached. So your diet is so restricted before, but post-transplant, you're able to eat a lot of the foods that you know you are eating before. So it kind of gets you back to feeling normal, feeling like you want to eat you know, eat out even because before when I went out, I would be the person on the menu being like, I can't eat that. I can't eat that. I can't eat that. Yeah. And then you'd be left with one random thing you can eat, but you don't want to eat that. <laughs> yeah. So it, it did come back to normalcy where I could eat a, a wider range of foods. And I love that. Uh, but for transplant recipients, you know, since it's not my organ, I have immunosuppressants to keep up with. So immunosuppressants are medications that make sure your body reduces your immunity. Mm-hmm. So your body doesn't realize that it's uh, a foreign organ in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a bit difficult. In the beginning, it was hard keeping up with 13 different drugs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Off the bat. <laughs> yeah. It feels like you're carrying a pharmacy with you every, everywhere you go. Yeah. Yeah, I used to, not anymore, but I used to wake up on Friday morning, take 13 pills. And I was, just, it was just a lot of different like medications and everything to keep up with. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. That's, okay. <laughs> that's why you're so inspiring. Because you did that at like teenage with BD. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, th- I th- Yeah. I think because I'm also on immunosuppressants as well. Because, um, my thing is like attack, it attacks itself because it thinks that something is wrong, which I think is a lot of immuno or immune. Yeah, um, immune. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's so interesting that I knew that mm-hmm. immune, I think as the more I do this podcast, I learn more about like different immune diseases or chronic illness, whatever it be. And I didn't realize how like similar they all were and like how similar we all have experiences. I thought they were very like, specialized but i mean they are in their own way but they're all like kind of similar which i find is interesting yeah when the body attacks itself it's like man whoa it's rough but i i get you i think the overall thing is very similar but it depends what it's attacking and then the doctors are so specialized it's like if it's attacking this you go here if it's attacking this you go here (laughs) right but then it's also hard to find those i mean i had trouble finding or even like getting into specialized doctors that like knew what was happening really yeah because i think um i mean there's like very little my disease arthritis is like very common but there's not a lot of room especially pediatric rheumatologists so did you is there like a lot of did you ever have trouble finding any doctors or was it was it like there were always there were people around it, it was a bit difficult you know my autoimmune i caught mine late so it's like it's already happened after the fact. So I had to look for a kidney doctor. And that's what I kind of ended up being labeled as, if I can call it. I'm a kidney patient. <laughs> so it wasn't that hard. But in Kenya, there are not so many they're called nephrologists who manage kidney disease. So it was a bit challenging. But once my mom is the one who did all that work, like she went and searched and she found one. I found there are a couple of them. And so now I'm able to refer people. But a lot of people just don't know that they're there for, for kidney for kidney doctors. 
but I know for something as specialized as yours, it, it must be, especially for pediatrics. Okay, we can, I guess, um, let's, uh, so I know that my disease, all, like, is the way I I looked at, like, like, healthcare. So do you think that your, I mean, obviously your disease is kind of like a pathway into your advocacy for everything, but how did that, like, change your view on healthcare, like, insurance policies, everything like that? So before, just like any other young person, I thought insurance was an extra cost. Why do you have to pay for insurance out of pocket? I really, yeah, I didn't put much weight on insurance before. You know, I was healthy and it was something I viewed for older people. You know, when, when you're getting towards your retirement age, when your health maybe starts fading, that's how I thought about insurance. But when I went through what I went through, I realized how expensive healthcare is. I didn't, I didn't know how expensive it was because at that time, you go in for something, you get medication, you're released and you go, right? But now when you have something chronic, it's like you go and you're going to keep going and you're going to keep going. Like it, it's never going to stop. So you run out of reserves real quick if you're paying out of pocket. And it made me realize how important that is, you know? And so at the time, uh, I believe when I was in the States and I, I came in 2010, like Obamacare was, you know, starting to be a big thing. And I remember the debates around Obamacare. And so now I started thinking, wow, this actually makes sense when healthy people pay for people like us. You know, it makes sense because you're healthy and at least you have that. But the arguments are so back and forth. It's all political and I don't want to get into politics. But I do believe that insurance should be a safety net. Mm-hmm. It should be, yeah, it should be something that if I'm sick, chronic, like chronic illness, I shouldn't die because I can't access technologies or doctors or you know what I mean let me die because there's nothing those people can do for me and the technology and anything I get that but if I'm dying because I can't afford it right I don't have a problem with that I don't I don't think it's okay I'd rather (laughs) I mean yeah I totally agree and I think like I'm obviously like very fortunate in my that we have like insurance and everything but even I have like my med a couple months ago, my medicine, my insurance decided it wasn't going to pay for it anymore. Um, And it's like, I think like $5,000 a bottle or something like that. And I go through bottles every two weeks. So it was like, uh, we got my doctor sent out a note and we like got it back on insurance, but like we wouldn't have been able to like keep up with that. And that's the only thing that is like suppressing my immune system from attacking itself. So I just think it's crazy how like I'm in a very good spot and I still have, like, we still have issues. So, yeah. yeah um, I, like, on that point, immunosuppressants are ridiculously expensive. I, I, <laughs> I don't even know because when I when I came back, uh, we had to get, I think it's not even generics. Yeah, we had to get generics from India. I'm not even on original drugs, you know, just because the cost would be too much. And like you said, you know, that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. So. I do agree. It's, it's something that, wow, if you don't have insurance, I don't know how long you survive with it. Right. Going back to like your transplant and your sister, um, do you think like your relationship with her changed after your donation? Did you get closer or anything like that? Yes. To all that. <laughs> we got super close, super, super close. In fact, it's so interesting these days. 
uh, I'd be thinking about her and she calls or vice versa. It's like this this connection that is just so hard to explain. Or sometimes I'll call and be like, are you okay? And she's like, oh, this and this and this. We just have this connection that's grown really close. But me and her before, we were really close just to start with. I we grew up together two years apart. So I'm her little brother, you know, and she would protect me at all costs. But when this happened, uh, the emotions, like you said, even not just the surgery, like when you wake up and realize that you're running on someone else's kidney or someone else's part, like their the organ is keeping you alive. Uh, there's just no words you can say. You know, I, I said thank you so many times. We cried about it and she, she kept telling me, you know what, take it, receive it and, and move. You know, I, I saw you on dialysis and it was just taking so much of your life, taking so much of your time that it hurt me so much to see you there. So the fact that I could donate, and this is her, she, she, she felt like she could help me in a way to kind of get back to as normal as possible. So we, we did get super close up because of that and went through so much, you know, during the transplant workup, the transplant itself and the recovery. Mm-hmm. So these days we're able to talk about anything and <laughs> because nothing compares to that surgery and like all the prep and all the things you have to go through together just to, you know, get the transplant and it to be successful. Right. Yeah. And then you went, you were in the States for a little bit. And by the time you returned to Kenya, your life was like very different than when you had left, right? Like you didn't have, so how was that? How was that like transition back, back home? Well, my life when I came back, really, it, it was shambles. Like, I think I was, I was just focusing so much on my life, you know, just staying alive, but everything else was secondary. So everyone's like, okay, he needs a transplant. He needs to, you know, this, this is the, the primary thing. This is the main thing that needs to happen. So I get back from India about three months after we went. So it was about January of 2017. And I hadn't planned anything. I didn't plan my career moving back, my friends. And interesting fact is once you get a transplant, you can't meet people for six months. You can't. So yeah, you you, you put on quarantine because your immunity is essentially zero. Like they, they put you on such heavy immunosuppressants that if anything happens, you'll be really, really sick. Yeah. So for those first six months, it's the highest risk period. And that quarantine, I only saw my doctor and my close family that I was living with here. Everyone else I had to tell wait or when we did meet it was about six months later. Yeah. Then <laughs> one or two people I'd meet. So that change really it really dawned on me that okay, I'm better, but I'm still living with a chronic illness. One. And then two because of just the restrictions from the transplant, I didn't have the, I didn't have a job. You know, it's like you're always being told you need to look for a job or we sustain yourself. But I couldn't sustain myself for those six months. And then after that, it's like it was so hard to get back on it and get back into the group of things in a different country that I didn't know what to do. So the next year is when I started my own organization and I was like, I'd rather do that. I'd rather do raise awareness, advocate, and just show people how challenging it is. You know, you, you see the success stories and I'm better, yes. But there's so many things I'm dealing with trying. Right. Yeah. So your foundation, if you want, do you want to talk a little about that and like how it created, because I think it created a sense of like community for um, people with kidney transplants or like any kind of thing like that. So 
My foundation is called Transplant Education Kenya, and I founded it in 2018. And it's basically a platform that raises awareness on transplantation and organ donation. Because when I came back to my country, I figured a lot of people didn't know about organ donation. I think the, the people who knew about organ donation were in families or new people who needed an organ. But then other than that, there was a lot of stigma still attached to it and a lot of taboo because people felt like the, I guess the misconceptions out there are when you donate, you're gonna go through kidney failure, or you're gonna, this, you know, you're gonna go through things that mm, you're gonna go through things that uh, you're you're trying to prevent. I don't know, like there was just such negative vibes about mm-hmm. donating an organ because of misconceptions and I guess ignorance out there. So I decided to start this organization and raise awareness on how beneficial organ donation is and how it saves lives and how, you know, my life was saved by it. And I have so many friends, I have friends who had liver transplants, who had bone marrow transplants, and they were able to pick up their lives and, and live the best they can because we're, we're really young. We're, I guess us in our 20s were considered young here. <laughs> but we were able to, yeah, just pick up where we left. So. Transplant Education Kenya, we do a lot of kidney campaigns. I think our biggest campaign is like kidney, yeah, kidney donation because it's the biggest or the most donated organ, followed by liver and uh, I believe the bone marrow because bone marrow transplant happen when you have cancer, like you have leukemia or yeah, those blood cancers that you need to have a bone marrow transplant. Uh, yeah, so that's what Transplant Education does. Uh, we have a support group where we try and meet. It's been interfered with because of COVID and we're high risk. But we're trying to start up online meetings with Zoom or Google Meet, and that's in the works. And we're also trying to get into merchandise to raise awareness because it's it's been, yeah, it's been a bit hectic because of last year. So we're just trying to see how to you know, keep the advocacy going. But in Kenya, one thing I have remembered is there's uh, a bill on organ donation and it's linked to the blood transfusion bill. So we want to push for that. We want to kind of mm-hmm. push for the policy to be yeah, made into a law because it's, it's, it's still in the policy phase. It's not yet law, you know, but it, it's, it's been there. But without public education or people knowing about it, it'll be very difficult for that bill to pass because they want to know how important it is to communities like us. I guess you're um you mentioned COVID. I think that's my my last my last questions about like um how has this past year changed your life and COVID changed your lifestyle and then like just what that looks like. Because I know that at least here people with pre-existing conditions will hopefully get vaccinated in the spring. But like, what is that looking like for you guys? COVID has really, really impacted us here, but it's not been as serious as the States. I think that our death rates have been relatively low. Like a lot of people are recovering from it over here. But I think for us with pre-existing conditions, I know that 
When I spoke to my nephrologist, he was telling me that people on dialysis are the ones who are dying when they get COVID. I think just because of yeah, them being on dialysis and people with diabetes, of course. But for us to do a transplant, uh, the medication I, I had that because of bread, like the steroids kind of helped out with with COVID. I don't know how, how true that is. That's just something I, I had. But he, he did tell me that people on dialysis mm-hmm. are the ones who are passing it to get it. But with COVID here, how did it impact us? The vaccine is here, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about it. A lot of people don't trust the vaccine here. And states. So yeah. there's a lot of people who say don't get it, even though they're fine. They don't have pre-existing conditions like we do, you know. But I've seen doctors here getting it. The doctors have been getting it because they're the front line. I don't know when it will come to us with chronic illnesses. I don't know. I, I think it's something that we're going to wait out. I was trying to watch this video on how they're distributing the vaccines in different countries. And different countries have different strategies on how they'll vaccinate their population. Uh, but in Kenya, I am not sure that they're going to have like a period when they'll vaccinate us with chronic illnesses. I think how it will go is health workers first, of course, and then from there, maybe people who can afford it, because I'm sure there will be a cost attached to the vaccine. Yeah, that's what I'm suspecting is going right. to happen with, with the vaccine. But other than that, I've been very fortunate that few people have died from COVID that I know personally. Yeah, most have recovered right. from it. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting, like, obviously here we have a lot of cases, and I think there definitely is some, like, pushback to the vaccine, especially because I think a lot of them aren't, like, most of them aren't more than 90%, like, effective anyway, but I think, I mean, we have definitely distributed a lot, although they are, like, very much behind schedule for, for distributing them, but do you have anything else that you want to add about your... Any like advocacy or anything, anything people want to hear, anything you want people to hear? Anything that I want people to hear, like a, like a parting shot. Yeah. Or like something you want people to take away from your story or. Yeah. I think for me, my parting shot or what I want people to take from this is first of all, value your health. Like health is wealth. I I was reading a post about it and a lot of people take their, their health for granted, you know, until something happens and then you realize, whoa, okay, that's, that's a big one. But I would really love people to know, or I'd love people to think about organ donation. That That's for me. I, I think it, it would really make me, you know, feel like I've done something if even one person thinks about organ donation who didn't think about it. Because being on that side where you're waiting for an organ and you didn't do anything to to make it fail because I get a lot of people who ask me, what did you do? Did you drink? Were you an alcoholic? And I'm like, man, I was 23. (laughs) uh, Yeah, I didn't do anything, you know, actively to make my organs fail or my kidneys fail. So I would love people to think about donating, even if it's after, you know, this organ donation, you know, that would help someone and it goes a long way in improving the quality of life for somebody. So I would really appreciate if someone would do that or read about it or see if it's something they would be interested in. Yeah, that would be a really good. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I know that 
I, I mean, I knew someone who was needed a kidney transplant and there's like a really long, like you get put on like a wait, a wait list essentially, right? Yeah. Eight years. So that's like, and I was young. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he was he was older and he was like at the bottom of their list because I think as you age, it gets, you get down. So that's just, it's crazy that you're like, you're, I mean, your life depends on like this wait list. Yeah, and lucky for you guys in the safety of a wait list here in Kenya, we don't have a wait list and those are some of the things I want to start the conversations on and see if people can understand and see that, you know, it's, it helps somebody, you know, and it, hopefully it shouldn't put me in debt. You know, these immunosuppressants, man, if somebody out there could improve that, <laughs> I don't think we should go into debt because of, you know, just looking for a better quality of life. You know, these, the immunos- these they help so much. But I don't want to be stressing about when will I get the next dose or I have to import my medicine from India just because luckily, like here locally in Kenya, it's so expensive for tacrolimus or even microphenolate. Any of those are just so expensive. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for meeting with me. I know it's kind of weird on Zoom, but it was so nice to talk to you. And I hope everyone learned something from this episode. (laughs) 